Anish, welcome. How are you doing, man? Panther Protocol time. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Man, I went, um, I've been reading about Panther for a while now, and I've been seeing the enthusiasm boil around it over the internet. Slowly but surely, people are getting to learn about it, and everyone's excited, or at least the people that I know that are in the know are excited. So can you tell us what's, what's the big deal? Why is everyone excited about funding Panther Protocol to go on and do what you're trying to do? I mean, I would describe it in very simple terms. If the world believes in democracy, that implies the world needs privacy. If the world needs privacy, and if it wants DeFi, it needs to have a protocol that supports privacy on DeFi. And hence, Pandas supports it. So, you know, if you follow the logic backwards, if you want the world to be the world as it is, having privacy and have the ability for people to choose who they rule and what they do, you know, we need to have protocols like Panther. And I guess that makes it something worth, you know, doing. I mean, if you look back at the, at the history of this podcast, we've tried to keep the privacy, the privacy protocols and the privacy projects in the front or at least bring them in a constant basis because I really believe in this vision that we are of to build privacy through technology. I really think that's the way to move things forward. Now that we've built scarcity and pretty much perfect transparency with the blockchain. But do you get any do you get any pushback when you're pitching Panther? No, like you know, it's a different kind of a story. Like the storyline is there are two classes of people who understand it two different ways the average people in the street, like you and me, who have been used to having privacy in a slightly different sense. Let me tell you what that means. You know, everybody thinks of US dollar, the green money, right? right. But if you analyze this green, green money, you will find traces of drugs, excreta, and every kind of secretion, right? Ah, so that I tells you. you <laughs> so you go to a bank, you pull this out of the bank and you do what the hell you want to do. And this is what we have been used to. Now, you know, DeFi, one of the things that everybody is missing and not recognizing until the cat is out of the bag is the fact that we are making assumptions on privacy. And to me, this is a dangerous thing, right? We need to be aware of what we are doing. I'm sorry, for those, actually... for those that are listening on Spotify or on another <laughs> or on another platform, Anish just literally pulled up a dollar and you would not believe what it's in his phone. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I'm just describing the world as it is. Like, if you uh, want to do a transaction in the current world, you know, you, you know everybody wants to have some regulation. Okay, l let's assume the world as it is. The reason I say that is like everybody who is into DeFi would say to you, I want the world to be changed. I'm not going to say that because, you know, I've been in this game far too long. Uh, you know, I think it's almost 10 years since I've been designing protocols. I've, I've seen enough of changes in this crypto world to, you know, make, make silly claims, right? right? So what I'm saying is like you know, disruptions happens slowly but steadily. So William Gibson, who is actually a well-known scientific science fiction author, says this: like the future is already here. It's not, but it's not evenly distributed. 
So what I'm saying is in the world of DeFi, you know, certain things are ahead of other things. And privacy is something we need to think ahead of other things. And unless we think ahead of other things, we will get to a situation where the information arbitrage of all these data collectors and the information arbitrators will be against the society of all, and we will have a massive tragedy of commons. Okay, I, I, I mean, you talk about your expertise and about the time that you've been, okay. Before this conversation, when we were chatting off camera, you were telling me that Panther Protocol is basically the extension of something that you were thinking about for a very long time, right? Yes, and indeed. I understand that you have quite a picturesque background because you used to be a medical doctor, you went into yes. cybersecurity, you came into working, collaborating <laughs> with Ethereum. So yeah, can you just talk a bit about yourself? Because I find this story sure. super interesting. So yeah, I mean, I've been... In security and cryptography last 20 plus years. So from 2000 to 2001, I'll be 22 years. So my first degree is in medicine. I went to a med school. Uh, then I went and worked for, in a research lab. Then Ericsson hired me to build a micropayment system. Then I went back to another research lab being a visiting scientist in a top crypto research group. Then I went to do my master's and PhD program. Then I went and did some strategy consulting for seven years. Then I worked in retail banking for five years for HSBC and Lloyds. And in 2017, I decided I had enough and I started working full-time in blockchain. So blockchain is not the only technology that I've jumped in and you know messed the water. So you know, prior to blockchain, I was in cloud. So my Amazon Web Services account is from 2007 Feb. So in fact, I've met Andrew Jassy in a pub in London. I am guilty of writing three sections out of 10 of the Cloud Security Alliance Guide, contributing okay. to the uh, you know, Cloud Bias Decision Guide, creating a strategy school, a lot of the rubbish. And then I did a bunch of those things from open source drones. So I've been active in creating open source drones. And then along the time, you know, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, and all those things came along. So my first... Uh, a serious commitment to the space uh, was me being an advisor to Ripple uh, since October 17, 2013. And then, you know, I worked with them while I was working with them. This was all an interesting problem, a problem on the side that I'm interested in working on while I have a day job. That's how it has always been, right? So working on the cloud was the same, working on drones was the same, and blockchain was the same, right? And then around 2015, I gave a talk about I can't remember whether it was drones or something else. And Victor Tron was in the audience. He asked me, will you help us with Ethereum? And I said, why not? Will you?" He asked me to review the Ethereum orange paper. I reviewed the orange paper. So for that matter, my name is on the front page along with Vitalik and other people as the reviewers of the orange paper. And I actually spent a bit of time with the you know, Swamp team. I've given a couple of small Swamp team talks. And then along the last few years, probably I've done design or design review of half a dozen blockchains. And uh, I've probably at least a dozen dApps, the well-known ones that I've been involved in in some capacity, Pillar, Boson, Ocean Protocol. I mean, I can't remember all of them, but long list of them. In general, I'm kind of interested in the thing called protocol architecture. The other thing I'm interested in is token engineering, which I mostly call it crypto economics, applied crypto economics, that's how I call it. And then I have a lot of interest in secure multi-party computing and zero knowledge proof systems. Uh, 
So now going back to the problem at hand, which is the story of Pandav. Uh, so 11 years ago, uh, a friend of mine and me, he's now a well-known philosopher. Uh, you know, we started this debate between ourselves. I got stuck in an airport and typically this is what happens. So when I get stuck in an airport, I spend the time, you know, articulating things I have. I describe uh, structures in power as an information arbitrage. So we wrote a paper called The New Secret. And you can Google it and you can find it. So, you know, that pretty much what, what's described in there is pretty much what Panther is trying to, you know, provide some sense of resistance to for the society, right? So the way I describe in information hierarchy is, imagine you have a religion, right? Forgive me if you're religious, but this is just a thought experiment. Yeah. So you are in a, in a preconceived religion and you have a representative of God on earth. And this is an arbitrary information arbitrage. What the, the representative of God on earth is saying, like I can pass information to God. Whether he or she can or not is an arbitrary one, but that's an information arbitrage that gives them power. And this is literally what, you know, hierarchies of power literally translate to information hierarchies, right? And this applies in terms of privacy. So imagine this communication happening between two sets of people. If you could listen into it, then you have a power. You could be that God's servitory on ground, right? So this happens in financial transactions too, right? So this is Panther. Panther is Andy God, Andy Godman. Okay, I mean that's that's a great that's a great way to describe it, man. <laughs> I'm just curious because I find I find sort of like a missing link in this story before we go into the anti-God protocol. <laughs> where do we? Where did you leave the medical field? Like most people wouldn't just wouldn't put themselves through the hell that's med school just to <laughs> end up not practicing. Oh, it's a very simple reason. I was born in a state called Kerala, so. So my parents, I mean, I was, you know, uh, as one of those people who are slightly ahead of their age. So, you know, I learned most of the math I know, most of the electronics and most of the physics I know before I was like in my early teens. So my dad was like, you know, if he goes to engineering school, he'd be a bloody nuisance. And he said, okay, you're going to go to med school. So that's, 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 that was. And then uh, for my part, I am guilty of kind of topping the entrance exam of my state. So, yeah, so, you know, guilt on both parties, guilt on my parents are actually to sending me to med school, guilt on, guilt on my part for actually having done well enough to top the entrance exam of my state. There you go. There you go. Okay, good. So, all right, let's go into Panther then, having, <laughs> having cleared sure. that mystery out. Um, and of course, I will, another clarification point, because I, I don't know this, I know what a white paper is, I know what a yellow paper is, but what's an yeah. orange paper? Oh, okay. So I should give you some context to the whole story. Ethereum has a bunch of papers, right? And some guy looked at the, you know, there's a cycle race that normally happens in Paris. And they have this first, second, third, fourth kind of, each of the jerseys have a different color, white, yellow, orange, green, or whatever that is. So this is what happened. So typically speaking, the very high level paper is called white paper. A okay. bit more detailed paper is the yellow paper. And uh, implementation people could be green. 
And orange is, I don't know how the hell that happened, but it's another paper, I mean, as in like something that is related that you're going to go into a lot of detail. So uh, putting it in context in Ethereum, Ethereum has white paper that was written by uh, Vitalik and a bunch of guys. Uh, Yellow paper written mostly by Gavin. Uh, You know, orange paper written by uh, Victor and a bunch of guys and reviewed by me and Vitalik and a bunch of people. So that's how it is. Okay, that's good. Uh, I also, I just very recently finished uh, reading The Infinite Machine, the book on the founding yes. of Ethereum by, I think it's Camille yeah. Russell, her name. Great book. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, if you like Ethereum, if you like Gothic, that's your book. You should go read it. It's pretty good. I mean, I, I, yeah, what I say is like, you know, there is reality and there is gossip. Right. Uh, you know, most things. Uh, so I know a lot of people up front, like I knew them before they got into Ethereum, right? So I might agree to disagree with some of the you know, narratives, right? So let's put it this way. Like, you know, imagine you live next door to something that happens, right? Imagine right. there's a car crash. If you listen to the description of the events that happened on TV, you go, really? I don't believe that's exactly what happened. I just saw it, right? This right. is the feeling I have about things like this. Like, you know, it's it's, it's like, you know, There, there are a lot of nuances to a lot of things that happens. A lot, a lot of nuances. A person who is not there, who's looking at things in hindsight with very limited ability to really understand things will, you know, it's how myths are born, right? So let, let's, you know, let's use an information arbitrage thing and convert this into a myth. Okay, so literally what is happening is imagine This person who writes the book has no clue what the blockchain is. Oh, magical. Here is the apostle that appears. But the apostle is just a fraud in that sense. Apostle has lots of people working with him, making this thing happen. He hides all the rest of them under the cloth. And then he says, this is my shit, right? Unfortunately, that's not true. So this is how things normally happen. There is a lot of nuances. There are a lot of people. A lot of people put in a lot of effort. And there is a lot of debate going on. People who really don't understand any of this thing, again, apply this, you know, people in general, humanity has this construct of simplification. They go, oh, it's easy if you have very simple answers. This is right, that is wrong. It's never normally the case. It's just shades of gray, it's somewhere in the middle. And that is true of, you know, the history of Ethereum. There are lots of things that happened, there are lots of people that were involved. And, uh, you know, there was personalities, a lot of personalities, a lot of ego, a lot of infighting. When real money came in, a lot of other things happened. You know, all of this, uh, there is at least two versions of the story, right? And typically history is written by the victor. So there you go. Take take whatever it what is worth. My view of the book is that. And, and also to add to, to that point, like if you're writing a book, you want it to have some sort of structure and, and these, yes. books are, these books are page turners, right? So you want them to have a yeah. hero, you want the hero to have a journey, yes. you want, you want yes. them to be a villain of some absolutely. sort. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then so, when, you know, when you get that my... going, yeah, when you get that going, you yeah. have to portray some people, make a cartoon out of them, basically. Yeah. Ah, absolutely. Yes. This, is, this is exactly what it is, right? Like, you know, ha- having been so close to all the people that been involved and watched this thing up and close, you know, I have my views about capability of different sets of people and what they're capable of and what they've done. 
you know, but that might be my view. I've actually been, uh, in a, I've been lucky enough to have worked in at least half a dozen areas with people who, you know, really innovated those areas. So I have a very fair and precise view of what smart is and how capable people are. I mean, I think a lot of the people in the blockchain space were at the right place at the right time. That is how I describe it. It, you know, there is no direct correlation between the intellectual capa capacity or the ability to write code or uh, in the strangest of the way to put it, any ability to do cryptography, right? All three is completely non-correlated. It's just that they were in the right place at the right time to the largest degree. Now it's changing. Now if somebody wants to come in and do anything, you know, all the things become really, really relevant. Like if you try to walk in and try to do something you know, you are competing in an ecosystem that exists. So you need to be smart. You need to know what the hell you're doing in terms of being a programmer. Your cryptographic shit should be really, really tough notch. Otherwise, you will make a mark. So that that's how it is. And like you said, that's what they call the... I mean, this is... They call it a dilemma, and I don't know if it's the Kasparov dilemma, but it has a chess player's name because it basically like the fact that even if you're a super smart person in one field, that doesn't directly correlate to others, and that doesn't really necessarily mean you're smart in yes. the rest of life, basically. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is not, I and mean, there are a few, few variants of that. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you have been a very close follower of. Uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, both uh, the two people, Berkshire Hathaway, oh, this novel, it's about, uh, let me do this, uh, if you haven't read this, Warren Buffett. I definitely don't think I have ever, I have even read something half the size of that ever. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the guy. He's one yeah. of the legendary investors, and he has another half, in a sense, the other guy who works with Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger, yeah. Uh, Charlie Munger, yes. So Charlie Munger is the guy who has actually, you know, clearly articulated to people, you know, what really mental models mean, uh, circles of competence. I think Warren Buffett has actually articulated both Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger has clearly articulated the circles of competence. The circles of competence is the fact that you know what you are good at. And you are very careful in defining your circle of competence. And like, that is like a very key thing that like, you know, the more you know, the better you have higher resolution for the boundaries of circles of competence. So the less you know, the, the, the boundaries of circles of competence become grayer and grayer. And you make judgments on things that you are completely not, you know, I would say, possibly qualified to do right right which is like the bike shed dilemma whereas no one would go and advise how to build a nuclear factor when when it comes to something smaller like a bike shed everyone's an expert uh, although you yes. all still have no knowledge of the basic principles yes i mean this is the typical problem like it's the levels of abstraction and your ability to actually think from basic principles and kind of do the Bayesian reasoning where you go, okay, if a, a, a thing is a product of probabilities, it's a power law distribution. And what that implies is like the total number of people who have that level of skill at the particular thing is infinitesimally small in that sense. The larger the products, because the probability is always less than one, 
it'll be a tiny one. And I don't think most people think of it that way. Okay, man, uh, we've uh, covered quite a bit of philosophy now. So I'm just going to send to a quick message from the sponsors before we come back to talk about the actual Panther protocol, the actual matter at hand. These guys, this is the only ad that we do. It's only 30 seconds. So take it as a chance to drink some water, go tell a friend that you love them and write about your favorite privacy ideas in the comments. So we'll be right back. The Blockchain People podcast is brought to you by CoinPayments, the world's first and leading crypto payment processor. CoinPayments serves over 70,000 merchants in over 200 nations with industry low fees since 2013. The CoinPayments wallet lets users hold over 2,000 different cryptocurrencies, which is why they're used by giants such as NordVPN and Binance. Whether you're a merchant or an individual looking to get paid in crypto, CoinPayments could be just what you need. And we take it back from there. So, Anish, I mean, where to start with Panther? An oversimplification I sort of made for myself when it comes to Panther is that's basically Polkadot for privacy. I know that's not 100% right. I know that's also not yes. 100% wrong. <laughs> so can you explain <laughs> why I'm right and what I'm wrong? <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the things about Polkadot is Polkadot has a structure, which I mean, I really don't believe in what Polkadot is trying to do. Okay, let me explain why and you know why you, you are probably right and why I think is wrong. Okay. So what Polkadot does is this ability to uh, you know quantify value of consensus. Okay. If you have two chains, they call them parachains, and you have a bridge, you are able to transfer consensus from one chain to the next. The thing is, like, if you have proof of stake on one, and proof of stake on the other, the proof of stake in one is actually an arbitrage on you know the two chains. So you can actually get two decisions on different price value if you're attacking both. So this is completely screws up uh, Polkadot's thinking, right? So, and the only way you could actually do this is you go to a market and find the price of consensus, right? So you can actually have that using an AMM, but that is not how consensus is achieved in a meta protocol like, uh, you know, Polkadot. So that is why I think, you know, probably you're trying to say the right thing, but in the nuances you got lost, right? I'd like. So yeah, that, this is a very generalist <laughs> sort of get your feet wet <laughs> sort of approach. Yeah. Well, yes. So why would I be right? I, I'll try. Yeah, so let, 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 let me try explain what Panther is trying to do in that sense. What Panther is trying to do is like, you know, if you're outside Panther, we really don't care what you're doing outside. You might not have any privacy. The moment you get into Panther, we want to provide you with privacy. And mostly what we want to do is do in an interchain dex manner. So that is where I think you're comparing with poker, right? So being an interchain dex. But in the chain decks, it's a very different characteristic, right? That is where poker fails, and that is where you know in the chain decks really, uh, really succeed. You can go to an exchange, as in like a normal market exchange, and you can find the value of you know consensus in a normal company because you can figure out how much of a shares that you need to buy, assuming it's for all one class of shares to overpower the current set of people who control a, a, an organization. That is the you know, value of consensus, right? 
you can find that. You can go to a normal exchange and find that. And you can do the same in an AMM in an interchain index, right? So that, however, is missing in Polka. Polka doesn't have the ability to do that. Okay. But Panther will do that for you because that's how markets work. So it's right. simple. Uh, we, we, we provide a couple of small pieces. If you are interested in getting your KYC or compliance, we will allow you to have that. You don't really care whether you have KYC or not. But what we do for you is like, if you at some point in time want to reveal a subset of your transactions, we will help you do that. So, you know, imagine you are somebody who has KYC AML, uh, you want to do some transactions. At some point later, if you're in the UK, you want to go to HMRC and say, oh, you know what? These are my transactions. This is how I got my money to do that. And while you're doing the transactions, your transaction are shielded. Done, so simple. The first, uh, the first privacy guest that we had in this podcast was um, Ruben Jap from Firo. And yep, he, I happen to know he, him. Yes, very, very charming, very smart dude. And shout out to Ruben Jap if you're listening to this. If um, and one thing that he dropped across that I was really interested on is this that you just mentioned that Firo is very focused on allowing people to showcase that they are compliant but that the way that this would mean is that your compliance would be in your own hands you would choose whether to reveal your past transactions account balance whatever i, I think compliance is slightly different from revealing things right so in a in a, in a what i would describe yeah. as a pro verifier mechanism you will have a service provider who actually would provide kyc and they are the prover and the protocol will act as a verifier. Now you actually have a verifier. I mean, you have a proof of verification, right? Now what you have then is like a bunch of transactions that happens. Now you attach your proof that you prove that you are KYC compliant and you could reveal by selective reveal or disclosure, you can actually reveal that this disclose, you know, this kind of protocol was run against you. As in like, it was you who got this KYC and these are the set of transactions that you actually have. And there are certain nuances it's like preventing replay attacks so that nobody else could actually gain any information about the reveal part of the protocol. That is something that we are after. So yeah, I mean, we are actually working with them. We have an MOU with them. I've known uh, you know, him for a long time. We've tried in the past to collaborate. So I, I shall admit I have been in this space called Zero Knowledge I actually have the zero knowledge handle in GitHub, in Telegram, most of the places I can get, including Gmail. I lost it now, but for the last twenty years I've been zero knowledge. So there you go. I think, and it was also Ruben that I introduced a very fun metaphor, at least like something that I've really been using a lot in conversations outside of the podcast, and that's what he called the elevator fart metaphor and that was basically like he would compare all the different <laughs> he would compare all the different <laughs> privacy protocols to a person coming into an elevator and farting <laughs> so like monero would yeah. be coming into the elevator with a set of people and then you don't know who did it Firo would be like extracting it from the yeah. top and he would just like compare it where would you place panther on this on this metaphor <laughs> I mean, as I said, we really are not involved in the farting business, right? Uh, 
So you're not <laughs> so. going to ask you to fart or not fart, right? Uh, so, you know, if you are in fire, in Firo or Monero, you know, you, you, you know, you could fart and you could actually make sure nobody else has other people in the elevator know, right? But in our instances, once you enter, you know, before you end up, you might even do a test to see if you farted or not, right? That's the compliance check. That could be the fart test before I... you get in and you get the proof. <laughs> the <not> the... <laughs> so proof that you're not the person who did this job, right? So now once you're in the mixer and while you're doing all the things that you have the proof that you're not one of them that who could actually do this or you're doing this, right? So at least the people in the elevator are safe. They know these are not the farters. You know, the set of all people in here with a high probability are not farters. That's how Panther does, right? Panther prevents people from farting in the elevator. Uh, you know, as long as Panther can avoid it. As long as Panther can avoid it. So I, oh, okay, now that we've covered that, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, like, <laughs> I'm so amused by this metaphor that I have to put everyone through this. I'm sorry. Um, so we have the, very interesting concept of sea assets in Panther, yep. right? And for yep. those that might not be familiar with the protocol, could you quickly go over them and why you think they're so important? Yeah, it's, it's, oh yeah, it's a very trivial concept. The reason it's trivial and it's important is the following. If you actually want to have an asset uh, that is shielded, you need to create a new one-to-one -one mapped asset. But other, otherwise what will happen is like any transactions that happen, will be very clear on the native layer to everybody. But if you, you know, shield it and you put it into, a, 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 you know, a transparent sack, not a transparent, uh, you know, opaque sack, and you carry it around, nobody would know. Like, you know, you're a cat, right? You know, you Here's know your paperback that for your bottle yes. of liquor, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So literally, that's how it is. Like, you know, this is what we are trying to do. But it's one-to-one, -one, so we know that we are not doing anything funny and everybody knows that nobody's doing anything funny. So one-to-one -one means like, if you put in one asset, you can get one, you know, one alcohol bottle in a paper product. So if you look at the, the shelf of the shop, there'd be one missing and there's one inside, right? Right. That's how it is, yeah. And um, yeah, like, but out there when everyone's walking on the street and everyone has their stuff within their within their own paperback no one knows yeah. who has nobody knows which is paperback which. yeah absolutely unless you're holding even, like even better, 3, even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah even better the thing is like what anybody has in the paperback is a question right they would all can have different liquors in the paperbacks the question is like what is the liquor in what paperback so this is this could be like what is Carlos having? What is Anish having? Is he having wine or is he having brandy or is he having rum? You know that is a kind of question that's happening. Is it a big bottle? It's just but the big bottle and small bottle is kind of abstracted because the paper gives away that. But you know the rest is kind of what it is. You can actually you know make it transparent and you know opaque for a whole bunch of people what you're drinking. And that's literally what we achieve, right? And in, in fact, it is like swapping around. So imagine this protocol in the physical world will be like what Panda is effectively doing is like people go to the shops, buy it in paperbacks, then they swap the paperbacks around and then they have these things in their bag. And literally the question is like, can anybody guess what paperback that you have? You have the ability to look, look and you know, open and look. Nobody else has. That's literally what it is. That's what Panda does for you. And 
I mean, there is the concept of, okay, you take this, and of course, you're just not allowing people to, to walk around with their paperbacks. You want them to be a part of DeFi. And here's where I think we should stop the here's where we should <laughs> stop the paperback metaphor because otherwise yeah. we're just gonna like be challenging yeah. the limits of reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing I was about to say was like, you know, how would Panther uh, you know how would Panther provide DeFi, right? So the question is the following: what is it you want to do in a DeFi to start with? We, we are thinking of providing an interchain index. So we already have a grant from one protocol, it's called the Flare Protocol, to build one, one side of the leg. And we are building on Ethereum. So day one is we have Flare, which apparently it has like 46 billion worth of assets in there. And they don't have a tax assistance. So it's like we would be one of the first ones to go there and provide DeFi in that sense. No, D there's a protocol with no DeFi. We are literally walking in and providing more DeFi. But on a larger scheme of things, what we want to do is allow people as in users to actually go into say like a DEX, like you know, Uniswap and be able to do that transaction while still preserving, you know, preserving their privacy. So we are thinking of doing that mostly in the L2 level. So, you know, because if you want to do most of those things in smart contract, it's quite expensive. Uh, but at the L2, the layer two level is much more cheaper. So we can actually get some good performance, you know, cheap, you know, cheap execution cost at, the, you know, high levels of privacy. That's what you're trying to do. And the, I mean, in a thing like this context where you're doing a privacy protocol and your goal is pretty much self-defining right the goal of a privacy protocol is to be private um, i mean the ultimate goal um you're also introducing the dao and i i reckon there must be some limitations to what the dao can do right like the dao wouldn't decide to go full transparent yeah i mean you know the the, the, the in theory it can right there's nothing stopping it from doing that so the thing is like, you know, we are starting out bootstrapping with the DAO. Uh, day one, the DAO will have a foundation behind it to actually execute the physical parts of the thing. And then DAO would completely be decentralized once the enough of threshold is received and that there's enough of decentralization of the protocol. And then, you know, people could actually put in proposal. It is possible that somebody would put in a proposal says like, you know, we be either completely decentralized and completely private, or he goes, we don't want any privacy and we are going to be completely public. You know, that's both possible. It's like, there's nothing stopping anybody from doing that. Other than the fact that everybody starts actually holding ZKPs will go nuts the moment somebody puts that proposal. So we are hoping to have something like a quadratic voting. So, you know, the cost of people's preferences are very clear rather than being arbitrary and the ability for people who have large amounts of ZKP is kind of bounded. I, I also thought it was very smart that you're introducing quadratic voting to the DAO, which is like yeah. a piece that was missing in most DAOs. We had Kevin Owoki from Gitcoin here the other day, and yeah. he talked about quadratic everything to great extent, yeah. if anyone wants to check that out. But yeah, yeah can you talk about your own reasonings to, to include quadratic? So, yeah, I know Kevin and all these guys. So I've been, so the summary to this is like, I've been in this game far longer than most people in the world in that sense. So to me, you know, I, I have, you know, played this game at least twice or thrice before, you know, 
I do it on my own. So this is like the end result of actually having designed probably 20 odd plus protocols. So, you know, first-hand experience of actually tried, having tried so many things in so many places. So, <laughs> so that's how I describe it. We can go into quadratic voting, but, you know, in theory, the so I, I met Glenn Vale a few years back. Uh, so I was telling you, I used to run a podcast. So we interviewed him and I agreed to disagree with him in some of this construct, especially identity. So as I say, like I'm a very opinionated. I base my reasoning based on the research I have done and I've done a reasonable amount of research. I published a bunch of papers and worked in a bunch of research labs and I know what rigor means. Generally speaking in blockchain, that's kind of missing. I mean, this is what I typically say about uh, the phenomenon of false cardiac surgeons in uh, blockchain. So imagine you have you needed to have a bypass surgery. Essentially what this means is like, your heart is going to be taken out, it'll be stopped, you'll be connected to a heart-lung machine, the cardiac surgeon will actually work on your heart, and then, you know, if it doesn't start, you're not coming off the heart-lung machine, and you are bye-bye, right? Or, or you so are, you but in a paper bag. CS <laughs> <laughs> it. <laughs> CSN, yes. <laughs> so literally now, if you want to actually choose a cardiac surgeon, you don't generally look at the number of degrees, where they are from, how many papers they publish, but you look at the result of their previous work, essentially risk normalized outcome for their patients, right? And that's what I say about a lot of the people in blockchain. Blockchain has a very high uh, ratio of uh, noisemakers to signal uh, signal ratio, right? Like I would say most of the people in this ecosystem are very, very, very good noise generators, like incredibly good noise generators. It's, you know, if you were to, uh, you know, apply like a compression mechanism, you could have like a three or four orders of magnitude of compression. I hope you understand what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. the yeah that's the level of noise generation these guys do so you know what has actually happened is like uh, you know certain things work reasonably well but if it aligns to certain other incentives other people have then you know it becomes very weird and very bizarre so example radical exchange right uh, you know radical exchanges like uh, you know intersection or quadratic voting meeting some other crap and uh, it has taken its own life. I mean, like it created its own life. Uh, you know, mechanism design has been around for a while and different methods have been proposed and different people have been involved in this. It's just that in you know, certain cases, I know certain mechanisms are better than others, right? It's quite trivial. Like, you know, it, there are lots of ways in which we normally make decisions. Sometimes we can toss a coin. It is very useful to just toss a coin to sometimes make decisions, but at times it's completely not a good idea to toss the coin, right? Right. So if you went to road, cross a road, you would never toss a coin and cross a road, right? You would look left and right and before you cross the road or look at the traffic lights. So that's that's what I literally mean. Blockchain has this concept that if you learn how to toss a coin, everything that you see, you toss a coin. And to me, quadratic voting is one such toss a coin methodology. There are different things for which different tools are useful. Don't ever use one tool for everything. You know, once you actually have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And this is like a massive problem in blockchain. So I'm kind of hesitant to go into that kind of a mode. 
I am more interested in seeing what is there and find the tool that actually works. If I don't have the tool, go find the person who has the tool. So that's my approach to solving this kind of problems. Um, I've been thinking about this question for a while. It's not something directly related to anything you just said, although it might be, and not directly related to Panther, but I just keep wondering how much weight should we put to the esteem that we put towards the people working in a blockchain project when we are trying to decide upon the blockchain project? And I mean steam as in we think we're, they're smart, we think they're kind, we think they have the good intentions. Yeah, so this is what I'm going to say, and this is going to be slightly controversial. So, you know, a few years back, uh, I was in Toronto and I was in a event organized by Ripple because at the point in time I was an advisor of Ripple. So they invited me, I was sat down with uh, Stefan Thomas, the CTO, and uh, he was talking to me about Ripple's adoption. I said to him, look, all blockchains are like religions. There is a delayed gratification. If a developer needs to adopt a blockchain, he or she has to put in effort with the hope that in the afterlife, that they will be rewarded, okay? And what is happening is you have a bunch of prophets and apostles, right? And unfortunately, this creation of, I mean, in a way, if you think about blockchains, the, the reason blockchains have succeeded is just because that humans have belief systems. So if you haven't actually read uh, UL Hariri's Sapiens, you should read it. Because that's one of the key things that you should recognize is the fact that you know, humans have this abstract concept of belief systems and these belief systems drive people to do crazy shit. And blockchain is one such crazy shit. And because of human nature, we have you know, prophets and apostles. And what you described there is creation of prophets and apostles. And sometimes you find out in hindsight, these prophets are complete and utter frauds. This is what is true of, uh, you know, religions in the past so many hundred years. And uh, you know, same is true of apostles as well, right? So that is true of blockchain as well. As I said, what really is being measured mostly in the case of prophets and apostles is their ability to communicate and to signal, not the ability to do what they have to do because what they do is the magic. And very few people have the ability to review magic. Remember, I was telling you the paper I wrote and why the paper was it was, right? You know, I don't know if you've actually read all these stories about old, uh, you know, in Egypt, apparently, there is this magic they actually did, which is essentially there's an altar. And when the uh, priest actually lights the altar, the air expands, it pumps out water and opens the door. That's magic. Yeah. Okay. It's magic is hidden. Only the people who build it will actually know it's there. Even the priest wouldn't even know, except the fact that he trusts. This is a very interesting construct. He trusts the person who builds it. So in blockchain, blockchain sits on layers and layers of things. So to me, there's an arbitrary number theoretic library that's set on the bottom. Then there's cryptography there, and then there's EVMs and other things. And what mostly blockchain is like the, the layer where EVM touches everything else. They're still believing on the, the artisans who actually build multi-position, you know, arbitrary multi-position you know, multi libraries and cryptographic libraries on top of it, right? And they're doing magic. So in my mind, this is 
the pattern that you've seen from prehistoric times till now, from ancient Egypt till now, you have prophets and priests who actually are doing information arbitrage. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it doesn't always work in the best interest of society. If you take a look at the way we operate and we act around blockchains, I mean, wouldn't it be for the financial part of it? You would think they're effectively religions, right? Like you go on Reddit and everyone has their religion and the ones in this religion, in this religious cult get along with the guys in this other one. But the ones in this other one think they're the other ones in the other side are all fake. And yeah, th- there are some scary, <laughs> scary yeah. consequences yeah. to that. I mean, I, I can probably, you know, say this like, there has been an ongoing debate between a, a bunch of people who believe in a slightly different way of doing token engineering. And I call it applied cryptonomics, right? It's like cryptonomics is a science you apply, that's whatever it is, and they call it token engineering. And, you know, as I said, I've been doing this far too long and I kind of volunteered to help anybody I knew. And I have this, you know, difference of opinion with a certain set of people. And what has become very apparent to me is like, you know, I really don't give a whatever about, you know, what other people think. If you really don't understand cryptography and you clearly don't understand economics and, you know, you say to me, okay, I really don't understand A and I really don't understand B, but I think I know where A meets D. I'm going, okay, you don't understand both, but the intersection of both, which implies you should know both, you think you are an expert. It beats me. I think the probability that you just created is a new style of math. And this is a new paradigm in blockchain. You have a lot of people whose existence is antithetical to the principles of mathematics. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just thinking that it, it, that's a very deep thing to think about, especially when we're just talking about the ratio of noise to signal when it comes to the people in blockchain. And yeah. the, isn't there where stuff like quadratic voting does us a lot a lot of good? And that's basically because I'm just gonna quickly go over it for those that might not know what we're talking about. It's just basically the concept that in like a DAO economy. If you have one dollar, one vote, you might have one person control of it. So you decrease the power of the voting. You decrease the voting power of the person with the most dollars in favor of what most people want. That amounts yes. to the same. So, so it's just a normalization mechanism. That's what essentially what it does. See, and this is lots of problems in the way you construct it. Whether it's a temporal way or is it like the you know waiting way, right? Like effectively, what you're saying is for a cycle of votes that's happening, you will be given an arbitrary upper bound of total number of votes you have. And if you want to put in multiple votes in the cycle, the 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 number the cost you have you're going to have is quadratic. So if you actually, you know, you know, put two words, it's four, it's like two plus two, because it's like linear and quadratic for two. It's at that point in time is kind of interlinked. So it's three and three. So it's like, you know, three, it will be like nine. And like, if you go five, that'll be 25. So if you want to put five words in, the total cost for you is like significant, right? That actually forces you to decide whether you want to put all your words down in one or you keep all your words in a way that, okay, I want the three are the most important ones I want to put in. I should really, so it's essentially 
forces the voter to rethink what is their top criteria. Or the, I mean, it could be that it could be completely idiotic. You remember our conversation, you know, it could be some guy who decides this, right? If that's the case, this is a problem. It's an adversarial set that we are actually thinking. So we think that this is the adversarial model in which the actor is acting. And that is assuming rational actors, right? You could actually have absolutely bongos actors. And this is one other thing that I always tell people. Then we actually have a set of things that's based on relief systems. Thinking that they are rational is absolute bongos. So there goes my view on blockchain ecosystem. How much do you think the same applies to, <laughs> to ourselves in this moment <laughs> and to people oh, listening you know, to us? No, absolutely. Like, you know, it is very possible. We have a large amount of bias. I've tried to reduce my bias by not participating in an economic sense in most of the protocols I built. So I take zero shares from Ripple, zero upside for actually working in Ethereum team. So my view on Ethereum, uh, we can actually go and listen to my uh, 2018 Swamp Summit talk about what I thought Ethereum should do to get to where it needs to get to. So I'm not biased. I'm not afraid of the fact that my value would actually go to zero. I am not, not afraid of actually peer review. So, you know, I've published things in peer review. I've worked in a bunch of labs. I worked on uh, ISO standards. I wrote test vectors. I am very, very happy and understand the value of peer review. And this is how I think about it. You know, I, I am not, uh, you know, sh you know, sh how could I say, I I'm not incentivized or held hostage by volatility of the assets, which has very high correlation with my words or my actions. And that is in a completely decorrelated from what is actually required of me for the best uh, outcome for the protocol. I would challenge anybody to do the same and then talk to me. I mean, I don't know anyone that does that. Props to you for doing that because I don't know, like it'd be very easy to think if I were you and I have this body of knowledge and I have this very clear competence in what I'm doing. And if I'm facing a problem and there's like a monetary value that almost not directly because there are other factors, right? But almost directly tracks the value of what I've built. It will be very seducing to just go ahead and invest in that, right? How do you? This is the problem. This how is the problem. Stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, you have to really think hard, and you need to really know your priorities. So you know, I am not saying an easy task, and I and that's part of the reason that I still have jobs. I mean, if I actually made the easy choices, then I don't have to work. So you know, I'm not saying that anybody should do it. I'm just saying, if you want to be unbiased, you need to be truly unbiased. You should not hold any crypto. To on the protocol that you're going to decide to do work on, so you can make the right choice. So you know, if you make a decision that's going to be orthogonal to the value, that's a crude. That's a one of the highest bias creating thing is the fear of loss for humans. Humans really hate losing their what they already have. And if you think about this, imagine you are a protocol designer, and you have this choice: choice A versus choice B. You know, a choice A implies that the value that you actually have for what you have is going to come down by half. <laughs> what are the odds you think that <laughs> the guy is going to do that or the girl is going to do that? Right. I think it's very low. Right. I think um, th there was a paper that say that, that every loss hurts 10 times as much as yes. a win of the yeah. own proportion. Yep, yeah, absolutely. 
So if you lose a thousand dollars, it hurts ten times yeah. more than you would be happy if you won a thousand dollars. And there's also the I- IKEA effect, right? So the IKEA effect is like imagine you have two chairs. Chair number one that you have bought of the shop, chair number two that you actually bought from IKEA where you put it together yourself. Even though it's identical value, because you actually put some extra effort, you would keep, if you have to throw it in a one set of chairs away, you'd keep the IKEA one and throw away the other one, right? Uh, so this applies to humans, right? So if you put an effort and your choice is between your protocol winning versus something else winning, you, you look at your thing and you'll apply your IKEA effect. Man. Okay. <laughs> okay, very very good tangents that we went on in there. I would like to bring things back a bit to the white paper of Panther, which was released very recently. And we were just talking about this off camera. You mentioned that this is just obviously version one of the white paper. So there's a lot of work that needs to go still into the white paper, but yes. still it can give people a very good idea of what it is that's oh, yeah. on the road. It is definitely quite quite a bit of a thinking. So it's a journey of thinking that actually I went through and Oliver and other people on the team went through. And it, 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 the task of actually articulating this to the larger degree was me, as I was saying, like I wrote this on this rocket book And uh, it was the start of the white paper. I wrote all the titles down and then, you know, it has been a very long journey. So, you know, trying to articulate what it really meant and how it's actually going to be. And the thing I think right now is like, we have just drawn a line in the sand. And the way I always think about protocol design and protocol evolution is, is it's a continuous process, okay? And I, I don't know if you've actually, you know, Hans Christiansen's, you know, innovator's dilemma kind of question, right? There's always the evolutionary pressure and then there is like a breakthrough and you have this massive advantage. Mm. So, you know, when that happens, we actually need to understand where the ecosystem is going. And, you know, we, who knows? So it's like our aim is to do X and Y and Z, which is like, you know, as I said, we want to actually provide you with the ability to have compliance. We want to uh, give you the ability to have selective disclosure. We want you to have the ability to go across one chain to the other chain while still preserving privacy. Who knows tomorrow if something changes and some of the things come in, we might actually reallocate our protocol or reassign our protocol, move things around so that the protocol stays relevant. Because to, to us, the fact that privacy is kind of you know, compromised for a larger set of things while for a lot of things to happen. So just to give you an idea. So imagine if you were a person who actually earns a living creating strategies in DeFi, you would be in a bit of a challenge, right? So it's like, if I know that you are good at what you do, I just go to the graph, I look at your in a smart contract address, I deploy a subgraph, I copy your trades, so your depth of the trade disappears. Now, I could be more malicious. I could actually do a sandwiching attack. I could do front running. I could do back running, right? So end of the day, what is happening here is like you, as a user, loses out because you don't have a protocol that actually supports what you want to do. You are trying to do all the right things. And Panther is literally trying to do that whether you are kind of an institutional or a retail user, we don't really differentiate between any kind of users in that sense. As you shouldn't, right? Like the whole promise of this yeah. economy, this new economy is that there would be no distinction. Yeah. I would, I mean, looking at the white paper, the roadmap stands out, of course, because that's like the most 
short i mean that, that, that that's the shortest writing of what you're planning on doing right and there was a point that really stood out to me and it was called legal opinion and clarification so what are you i mean how does this work for you if you're developing a privacy protocol and you go to a lawyer's office and you're basically trying to see if you're not going to get in trouble doing this yeah i mean we actually already had a one iteration so there was this, in, in, if you look at the light paper, the light paper had the constructor gatekeepers and the gatekeepers disappeared mm -hmm. because the lawyer said, you know, you would be in trouble. You might be in trouble. It is possible you could be in trouble. So disappeared. We, 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 you know, we just took over and just waved it and it disappeared. So, you know, that's how this happens. So, you know, uh, again, here you go. This is where the original, you know, roadmap appeared. Uh -huh. So I took a piece of, you know, I took my notebook, took my pen, started writing things up and stared at it for a bit. And that was the roadmap. So as I was describing, it's mostly, you know, me thinking out loud and getting my team to understand it and challenge me. And, you know, I, I took the initial steps and then they took on as a team this. Uh, this is not... Uh, you know, something that's easy, it's slightly ambitious, okay? I will admit to being a bit ambitious. And we really have to do a lot to achieve what we want to achieve because we really believe, this is a passion project, we really believe this is something we need to do, we have to do. We, for the sake of society, the sake of blockchain ecosystem, we need to have something like this. That's why we are doing it. So, you know, there are, there are shades of gray where we have taken risks, known risks, Okay, as so in like we know, you know, it is possible that, you know, certain entities might be upset about certain things. We try to balance the two, two, two facts, uh, you know, the, the need for privacy and need for compliance. And you're trying to, you know, thread that, you know, a camel through a needle's eye in that sense. That, that's, that's essentially what is happening. Right, and what would you say I mean, since you don't have your own capital on the line, what would you say to someone that might argue that you have no skin in the game? I actually have a small amount of capital in that sense. So okay. when the initial protocol was actually created, there were like three of us, incredibly small amount. But, you know, but what you need to understand is the opportunity cost for me, right? I, I, I am like uh, a guy who builds protocols and my uh, rates are reasonably high. I don't want to go into rates, but I'm sure people who know me know what my rates are. So if I don't take a protocol for, or I don't take another protocol for a period in time, a year, two years, that's an enormous amount of opportunity cost. Right. So, yeah, so that, that's a huge amount of opportunity cost. Plus the reputational risk. Yes. I mean, Reputational always. risk is like, it's always there. Like, you know, you, you can't ever avoid reputational risk. You can do your best job, but, you know, uh, just, just to give an example, like, you know, there are sometimes technology and sometimes like humans. You could never trust humans. So there's the most recent one where the, the stake count versus five, uh, five box kind of thing, right? So there's stake counts, key management solution, and uh, they now have a case in Israel. And I'm reasonably certain it's just some procedural thing that happened. The crypto that is there also all solid, rock solid. But you know, you look at this larger scheme of things. You have a 75 million suit between the two guys. And what do I think of it? Is that a reputational loss for the guys in Firebox? Absolutely. 
is that really it have to do anything with their competence? Most likely not, right? Uh-huh. It's just that somebody somewhere was supposed to move one thing from A to B or write something down, move something to somebody else. And so he's like, there is always a risk. You can do everything you could do with the highest competence, but somebody who's supposed to do something didn't do the right, right thing at the right point in time. That's always the case. You're right, you're right. And I mean, you've raised capital by now. You've raised yes. a substantial amount of capital and you're looking towards raising more. So I wouldn't say it's substantial. So it's like, you know, we got a small amount of capital and we got a reasonable amount of grants. So the thing is like, you know, you can play, the, the, the way I describe it is like, imagine you're going on an expedition to the South Pole, right? Not now, like in the olden days, right? So you know that you have to go there and come back, right? Or you need to go there and somebody will pick you up in that sense, right? But then all throughout the way, you actually need to carry everything you need to carry to get there. So there is an estimate of resources that you require to get there. So even though the resources that you look at it, but you know you need to take yourself from where you are to the end destination without, at least in my mind, without actually you know, failing and keeping your team in one piece, right? And back. I really don't want to be uh, in a Scots expedition to Antarctica, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I really want to have enough of resources with this extra buffer. So if the window comes in early of my tins leak or, or my, you know, my hoses disappear, right? I still stand a very good chance of succeeding. So, you know, the way I think about it is, is like, you know, you need to have enough of buffer uh, in terms of economic resources and human resources and intellectual resources to actually be able to achieve, uh, you know, what you want to achieve, especially if you're ambitious. If, especially in the privacy community. And I mean, I guess that the loudest bunch of all are the Monero people uh, just by the way they behave online. And they would basically call anyone that doesn't have a quote-unquote fair launch a scam. So how, how, yeah, how can you juxtapose the two things, fair launch, not yeah. fair launch, yeah, I mean, privacy? So the, yeah, the thing I was about to say is like, okay, I, I'm going to flip the argument around. I'm going to ask them to reveal to me, you know, have they had an upside, a significant upside in building a protocol? If they hadn't, then yes, I'm willing to listen to you. If you really believe in a protocol and you really want to actually do it, what you would do is, as I was describing all along, like make sure that your biases are minimal and you build the protocol and make sure the protocol actually really succeeds. Everything else, what you might say is signaling. The reality is like, if you have skin in the game, or does that skin really make you change your behavior, right? So if your behavior is 100% aligned with the longevity of the success of the protocol, then yes, I'm willing to listen. If anybody does anything contrary to that, in allocation of resources, the way you allocate it, it doesn't matter. I've seen a lot of them, right? I've seen Ripple early on. I've seen Ethereum before Ethereum became Ethereum. I've seen so many of the protocols. I've seen so close. So you know, to me, all of this is optics. Uh, you know, the reality is slightly different. You know, 
And there is no easy, simple solution that will make all of this go away. If there was, I would happily take it. And my take to more, most of the people who say such things, I was like, look, resource allocation is a very challenging problem. You have to play the game with what you are dealt with. What is important, end of the day, is making sure that the team's incentives are very much in alignment with the protocol's incentives, okay? Or the long, longevity of the protocol and the success of the protocol, not the other way around, right? If you could actually prove that to me, I'm happy. If you can't prove that to me, it's a, that argument is irrelevant. You know, you can climb trees. I, I don't give a shit. Okay, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a very fair way of looking at things. Some people might argue it's not how you should be looking at that, but it's stand on its own, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it, it's a different plane. It's like, you could actually, you know, the simplest way to think about it is like, okay, you know, this is an X-ray plane, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is an X-ray plane, but it's like a slice of an object. So to me, you know, the way I think about it is, my, my thinking is on the plane where I understand the incentives and the incentive alignment of the protocol and the team. I am not in, interested in the value accumulation, uh, you know, in the time basis, whether it's in the front or in the back. That's immaterial. Is the incentive alignment between the protocol and the team aligned? And is the real incentive success of the protocol? then that is a good method. If that is not, whether you raise fair, fair, fair race, non-fair race, call it whatever you want, it's completely irrelevant because that is not really doing anything. That has nothing to do with the protocol. It just has to do with how much resource the teams have or people have, right? Right, and that was a bit of, the point that they were making back in the day with Ethereum, right? Like even if they had a pre-mine, like the pre-mine was fun serving a function rather than yeah, rather it, standing it, on the it, way. It, of it's, yeah, this is this is exactly what I'm kind of saying. Like you know, different people have approached different things. It's a hard problem. Bootstrapping something is hard, and the problem bootstrapping is like how do you bootstrap something with you have nothing, right? So you you can have a begging bowl and actually do that, or you can create a stone soup. You know, initially, a panther was literally doing stone soup. The, the small investment, three stones that were put in by me, Oliver, and a friend of ours, and we stirred it long enough so other people joined. And like one of my friends, two of my friends, actually, they gave, gave us money so we can go to a lawyer and do all this stuff, right? So that's how the story of stone soup goes, right? Right. But um, would you like to say something since we're hit our time limit, we may have to go? Um, would you like to say something about the token sale, the upcoming token sales? Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I don't know when that would happen, given all the market variabilities and things like that. So the plan is something like this. If we manage to achieve a token sale, if we accumulate enough of resources, we would like to do a lot more things. And I'm sure if you look at our roadmap, which is this, in my hand is my original roadmap, which I drew my, with my own hand. Everybody agrees that's very, very ambitious. I would really like to achieve it. And I know for the amount of resources we have, we are unlikely to achieve everything we want. We really want to actually have a truly decentralized protocol that has a lot of functionality that will help a lot of things. 
and it is truly decentralized and like we will completely be out of the woods of this protocol as soon as the protocols are actually being delivered and stability is achieved. If you read the white paper, section 9.3 has some stability criteria and things like that. So once that's all achieved, we will literally be, you know, the protocol actually can ask us, the bunch of people in Stellium, the entity that actually builds the protocol to do something, but as far as we are concerned, we really want the protocol to actually succeed on its own. And we will build in as many mechanisms to protect itself. So if the so-called public sale happens, if you are somebody who really believes in what Panther stands for, we would greatly appreciate you come in because they, when you come in, what you're doing is you're actually putting your money where your mouth is. Literally, you are going to be the person who will represent the future of the Panther protocol going forward. I mean, not me, not anybody in my team, but you. So, you know, if you feel this is the right kind of thing that you're interested in, please, you know, participate in the public share because that's an important thing, public participation. You know, you will have ZKPs to vote. You will have the ability to put proposals in. You will have to say no to proposals. So please do the right thing. Do you, do you aim to have a system where people that bought tokens from the open market cannot vote? Or is I that not I haven't thing that you're interested in right now? We, that is not something that we are interested in right now. The way that we are thinking about it is like have a fair mechanism by which, you know, anybody who actually holds enough of ZKPs can actually vote. And we probably will have like, a, you know, some structure like quadratic voting. So preferences, preferences are really made out or made clear to everybody. How do you, how do you envision yourself? And your role should uh, should this come to fruition? Would you be happy being just one more member of the crowd? Yeah, I mean, I, I, officially, when the project started out, I was supposed to be the chief scientist, and uh, over time, we couldn't find a CTO. Actually, that's wrong when I say that. We tried to hire a CTO. We offered him a very good deal, but we couldn't convince him to join. So I ended up having three. Is this anybody we might know? Sorry, no, Is I don't it... think it's somebody. It's from a well-known protocol. I don't think I, I am not in the in the liberty of telling names. So let's put it this way. So it's it, it's from a very well-known protocol. He was a CTO of the protocol. Uh, we wanted to bring him over. So that was for me like something that will help me do things in a sense like you know that'll allow me focus on things other than what I'm doing right now. So I have like three three hats in some sense. I'm like the chief strategy officer, but I think about you know, what we need to do, how we need to do what to get to. I, I'm like a chief scientist where I think about a lot of the scientific problems. So my lead cryptographer is my PhD office mate. So I talk to him. I have an algorithmic game theorist that I spend time with. He's again, like a part-time team member. So I talk to him. And then like, you know, I talk to everybody in the tech team to do all the rest of the tech stuff. So, you know, that's my scientific hat. And then the CTO hat where I look after you know, my dev team and make sure that is happening. So if I had taken one hat off, which is the CTO hat off, then I, I would have more bandwidth to do the things I would love to do more. But, you know, that's how I think about it. So, you know, I think the biggest value add in any protocol that I do is generally the things that I enjoy doing, which is like the protocol design, the, the, the applied cryptoeconomics and like, and, you know, uh, using the moon math to make things happen. So those are the things that I really enjoy. And then once I'm done, like, I think I will hand over my keys to somebody else who comes in and fix it up. 
and you if know, you, it's the test. I mean, from all your years of experience, is there anything that you're doing with Panther that you would really like to see other people copying? I mean, in general, it's very simple, being brutally pragmatic and being honest to yourself. Like, you know, uh, our conversations generally are very brutally honest conversations. So it's like, you know, uh, once in a conversation, I just asked my team, it's like the lead, chief architect, do you think I'm crazy? The guy goes, yes, you are. So <laughs> that's what you need to have. Brutal honesty, complete, you know, open feedback mechanism so that you can't delude yourself into thinking that you are doing something in reality, you know, you're not. So that, that's the only thing I would say, like, you know, if you are being brutally honest to yourself and your team members keep you honest, you know, your cognitive dissonance, which is very prevalent in the blockchain ecosystem, uh, there's much less substance. It's like vaccines in COVID, right? If you have the vaccine, you're much less chance of actually being in ICU. So if you, the, the vaccine against this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance that completely infects blockchain is brutal honesty, practiced as an art or a religion within the, <laughs> the, the team so the team can call out anybody. And that helps. And that, that's within the team. We're not encouraging anyone to just go and start Twitter fights for the sake of <laughs> brutalness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people can actually have their fights. It's up to them to do what they want. It's, a, it's up to you. We're, we're here for the privacy. We're not here to tell you what to do. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So, man, I think we covered a lot. I think there is also a lot that we didn't cover. I mean, it's all in the paper. It's all going to be coming in the various materials that are going to be coming from, sure. from Panther. I really would encourage anyone that's interested in Panther to follow the medium since you guys are pretty active in there and, and you bring out a lot of content through there. I don't know. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience? So, I mean, I, I am not a great writer. So what I do is I get on podcasts and I say things. So there was one uh, podcast at the end of chain, end of the chain, where we had a long discussion about MEVs, uh, mine extractable values, front running, sandwiching, back running, uh, EIP one five five nine. So typically speaking, I have these conversations with people where I go through my thinking process, like as I talk to the person and I explain to them. And generally, I try articulate as, as good as I could. So it's like one of the things I do is like I teach at various universities. I've taught at MIT, I've taught at CMU, I've taught at, uh, you know, I have an adjunct faculty person, as, you know, used to have it at Saras World and I still have it at Harvard Space. So, you know, I, I am somebody who actually believes in teaching anything, you know, so you, you get challenged. So, you know, the way I see this is like a podcast is where you get an interactive medium where you get challenged by the other person. And, you know, it, it, even I can't write uh, and I'm not a great writer, you know, this is the best I can do. So, you know, listen to the forecast, especially if you're interested in what I think and what I'm thinking about things, probably that might be the best way to go. And I mean, you're a great guest, man. Like <laughs> I had someone very recently that basically you could really tell that she's so cheery. I don't know. Um, I'm just trying to erase the identity here. But they basically just tried to. You could see that they would take in this as a med, as a media op, and when people just take things as media opportunities, yeah, it doesn't get as interactive 
us here. Yes. They, they, they were not pulling books out of the shelf. That's what I'm trying to say. By the way, I'm, I'm getting a copy of Sapiens. You convinced me now. <laughs> okay, so um, anything else for the audience? Or should we say goodbye here? I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know it, 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 look, I would love the audience to actually understand the importance of privacy. You know, one of the things that we should always understand is like the world, you can always think of it in like two, two halves. Part of the world, we take privacy for granted. Part of the world, privacy is something that you really have to work hard to achieve. And what is literally happening is that the world is going towards a space where machine learning algorithms are actually doing the information arbitrage. And that's being converted into economic upside. And that's the whole construct of surveillance capitalism. And everybody is actually being squeezed by surveillance capitalism to actually squeeze the average person to accrue the value to a set of all parties who has access to large amounts of data can actually hire the people who could actually build large models, machine learning models, and have very large machines to compute, right? That is a small subset. This could be nation states, this could be the FANG, right? So understand what it means to have your privacy, what it means to actually have the ability to express yourself, what it means to actually have the ability to choose your leaders, what it means to actually have the ability to choose whether you want to drink tea or coffee. So think hard and do the right thing. Do you have any book recommendations on this or on surveillance God capitalism? Almighty, I have a lot of them. Oh, surveillance capitalism is there. Uh, age of surveillance capitalism. I would recommend my paper though. I published the paper ahead of her. Okay. I, I didn't. I didn't get a reference. So the, the paper is called "The New Secret." It's written by me and my friend Shad Mohan. Me as an Anish Mohammed and my friend Shad Mohan. We kind of describe this challenge, but you know you should definitely read that one. And I, there was a couple of talks I've given. Um, I can you know send you the links to those talks. So I kind of summarize this. Uh, in this problem of data marketplaces. We'll put them here in the description as well as the link to the paper since you also mentioned it in the beginning of the of the podcast. So we've come full circle. This was Panther Protocol for you all. Thank you very much, Anish. Thank you. Thank you very much. Guys, see you soon.